Thank you for listening to the Grace Harvest Church podcast. For more information, go to graceharvestchurch.org. And he wrote a classic book called The Cross of Christ on Jesus' death on the cross and all of its implication and what it means. And in his book, The Cross of Christ, there's this story. It's actually a play, a short play entitled The Long Silence. And I want to read it to you because I think it really captures kind of the beginning point of where we want to start today. It's not going to be where we end, but I want you to think about the implications of this story. The short play entitled The Long Silence says it all. At the end of time, billions of people were scattered on a great plain before God's throne. Most shrank back from the brilliant light before them. But some groups near the front talked angrily, not with cringing shame, but with belligerence. How can God judge us? How can He know anything about suffering? Snapped a pert young brunette. She ripped open a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp on her arm. We endured terror, beatings, torture, and then finally death. In another group, a young black boy lowered his collar and said, What about this? he demanded, showing an ugly rope burn. I was lynched for no crime but being black. In another crowd... A pregnant schoolgirl with sullen eyes said, Why should I suffer? She murmured. It wasn't my fault. Far out across the plain, there were hundreds of such groups. Each had a complaint against God for the evil and the suffering he permitted in his world. How lucky God was to live in heaven where all was sweetness and light, where there was no weeping or fear, nor hunger or wars or hatred. What did God know at all about what man had been forced to endure in this world? For God leads a pretty sheltered life, they said. So each of these groups picked a leader and sent him forth, chosen because that leader had suffered the most. There was a Jewish person who'd been through a concentration camp, a lynched African-American, a person from Hiroshima, a horribly deformed arthritic a birth-defected child, and in the center of the plain, they consulted with each other. At last, they were ready to present their case to God. It was a rather clever case. Before God could be qualified to be their judge, He must endure what they had endured. Their decision was that God should be sentenced to live on earth as a man. Let Him be born a Jew... Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. Let him give him a work so difficult that even his family will think that he's out of his mind when he tries to accomplish it and do it. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges, be tried by a prejudiced jury, and convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured. At the last, let him see what it means to be terribly alone. Then let him die. Let him die so there can be no doubt that he died. Let there be such a great host of witnesses to verify it. As each leader announced his portion of the sentence, loud murmurs of approval went up and down the throng of people assembled. And when the last had finished pronouncing the sentence, 
there was a long silence. No one uttered another word. No one moved. For suddenly, all of them knew that God had already served his sentence, that Jesus had done it all. In John chapter 19, in verses 16 through 18 and 28 through 30, we, we get this short little encapsulation of the crucifixion of Jesus. And this is what it says in John 19. Then Pilate, who was the governor of Jerusalem over that province of Judea, turned Jesus over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus away. Carrying the cross by himself, he went to the place called place of the skull, in Hebrew, Golgotha. There they nailed him to the cross. Two others were crucified with him, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Verse 28, Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. And to fulfill scripture, he said, I am thirsty. A jar of sour wine was sitting there, so they soaked a sponge in it. They put it on a hyssop branch, and they held it up to his lips as he hung on the cross there. And when Jesus had tasted it, he said, it is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. You know, Jesus carried it all, bore it all, absorbed it all. He's been there and done that. Everything that a human being could experience when it comes to suffering and death and pain and rejection and betrayal, he experienced it. He experienced, in fact, he, he took on the sins of the world. From Adam to whoever the last person is that will ever be born, Jesus took upon himself the sins of the world and absorbed in himself all of the evil thoughts, motives, actions, deeds that any human being could ever think of or come up with or do. He did it all. He bore it all. He absorbed it all in his own body. And here he is at the end of of that road, and he says, I'm done. My mission is complete. It is finished. And at that moment, he died our death, entered our suffering, and bore all of our sorrows and pain. And, but, but there's a problem with the story, and sometimes I've struggled with this. Maybe you have as well, and that is that it wasn't finished. So why would Jesus hang upon a cross and say, it is finished when, if you know the rest of the story, three days later, something profound happens. And what we see here is that everything he could do to bear our sin, to be our substitute, to be our lamb, everything he could do to absorb our punishment, to take our judgment, to die our death, the moment he said, it is finished, he completed it all. But let's be clear. If he doesn't rise from the dead three days later, the crucifixion is ultimately meaningless. But, but let's be clear as well. The resurrection 
doesn't have its power if he didn't fully bear our sin and take all of our sorrows and all of our pain. So when we look at this event, what is known as the passion of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, when we look at this event, we must see it as a whole, not as a separate Not as two separate events, but we must see Jesus died, Jesus was buried, Jesus rose again. And all of it is necessary to bring us before God and present us as right, as sons, as daughters, as forgiven. Amen? But we know this is what happened three days later. We know three days later the big event took place, right? Why we're here today, what we celebrate And before I go there, I just want to point something out. You know, behind me is a cross. I want you to think about the implications of this. This cross right now is beautified with flowers. And these flowers represent the resurrection. To be able to bring beauty out of something so evil and so harsh. But I I think we've lost the reality of the cross today. How many of you have cross jewelry, little crosses in your home, right? And, and listen, none of that's bad. It's beautiful that we've been able to take the cross and turn it into a sign of hope, of victory, that Christ won. It's an empty cross. He's not on it anymore. Amen? He bore our sins on it. Amen? But let's not forget, if this right here was an electric chair with all of its straps And it was sitting here with cords running off of it. And somebody behind a window over there ready to turn a knob. And it had flowers all over it. We would think, that's weird. And you have to understand, to the ancient world, the cross was offensive. The very worst of criminals. The most rejected in culture. The child molesters, those who who went against the state, those who did the most evil murders, the people that were considered the lowest of the low, low, the scummiest of the scummiest, as it were, the very people Jesus died for. Jesus hung with them on a human torture device that's unparalleled in history. When you think about it, nothing was as painful. At least if you sit down in an electric chair and those thousands of volts move into your body, it's a matter of minutes before you die. But on a cross, you were tortured and died a slow, terrible, horrific death over the course of time. And then after you died, and I know we have children here, but here's the reality. After you died, your body was left up there to rot. As the birds of the air flew down upon it and plucked out the eyes and ate the flesh. And everybody saw, this is what happens to you when you sin against the Roman state. This is what happens to you when you rebel against this government. And that's what Jesus bore for us. So as we talk about his resurrection, let's be sure of something. He was tortured and he died a real death. And he was buried in a real tomb. And he was there three days And that makes his resurrection so altering to all of the universe. It shakes the heavens and the earth. It changes everything. It's the most significant event in human history. Even more significant than the day God said, let there be, and it became. So let's, let's read Luke 24, 1 through 12. It says, but on the first 
day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. Now, this is really important language. When we look at the scriptures, we have to understand that nothing is there by chance. Why the first day of the week? Why early dawn? This is a reference to a new creation. You see, because back in the original creation, if you read the biblical account, we we see this beautiful story of God creating all of the universe over seven days, over six days. Six days of creation on the seventh day, he rested, right? So he's creating, you know, the sun, the moon, the stars, the heavens. He creates the earth. He creates all of the foliage. He creates the animals. He creates all of the fish and everything that swims in the ocean. He's going through this process. He comes to the end of the sixth day. He makes his magnum opus, his greatest of all of his creations, his image bearers. He makes his icons people, human beings. And he actually ends his creation by making what? A woman. So by the way, guys, women the la- were the last thing God created. And usually, the, the way that the order was throughout the course of events, whatever was last was best. <laughs> he saved his best for last. Now, now this, this is significant. Stay with me. This is really significant, okay? So six days, he creates. Seventh day, he rested. Now... And, and Adam and Eve, they're in the garden, right? They're in the garden, and, and we know the story. The poor ladies have taken a bad rap for a long time. Serpent comes along. Hey, sweetheart. <laughs> Offers some fruit. Wasn't an apple. Let's give the apple a break. Never says it was an apple. Okay, gives, you know, she takes it. She gives to her husband. Creation falls. They're pushed outside of the garden, Right? You know the story. They're pushed outside of the garden. The garden is barred. An angel with a flaming sword is put there. And now you're not welcome here anymore. You're not welcome in God's paradise anymore. There's so much, there's so many symbolic, powerful pictures of the human state. We're pushed outside of paradise. We're out here now in the wilderness, the world of sin and death. Right? Now. And, and where did they fall? They fell at a tree, right? They partook of a fruit they shouldn't. Now it's the first day of the week. Jesus is buried in a garden. He hung, according to Peter, on a tree, the cross. He's put in behind a tomb with a stone. He's sealed off, and on the first day of the week, the stone is rolled away. Things are open, and out emerges the last Adam, the new Adam, the beginning of the new creation, the restorer of all that's been lost will now be found. And he steps out and he inaugurates a new era, a new time. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. God is now taking back what has fallen, what's been broken. He's taking it back. He's fixing it. And he's starting with human hearts. One at a time, he's looking for you. He's looking for me. He's saying, I want to make you right. You may not even realize it, but you're not right. You're wrong. Sin has twisted you. It's broken you. And I'm here to fix it now. That's why Jesus came. So look at the the language. On the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared, verse 2, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. 
While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, that's us, and and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. Bing! And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven. I want you to see who they were and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stopping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Such a powerful, powerful story. And I just want to break it down and bring out several points to it. The first thing is, it says they, they found the stone rolled away. Now, this has often been preached and, and commented on, but let's just remember, they didn't find the stone rolled away so Jesus could get out. Jesus in his resurrection body could literally go and be outside the tomb, pass right through the stone. He was not held by natural law. He was above it and beyond it. He could have gone... And it would have went and turned into powder. The stone was rolled away so others could come and look in. Others could behold what had happened and see it. And it was rolled away to let them in to see. And, and when you put all the different Bible accounts together, it looks like up to six women first witnessed the resurrection. Think about that. Six women first witnessed the resurrection. In Israel at this time, the account of a woman was not even admissible in a court of law. Yet the Lord saw to it that faithful women were the first to witness the most important event in history. These women found the stone rolled away. Women were the first in the new creation to preach Jesus' resurrection. Why is that powerful? Because women have got a bad rap for a long time. Ah, If Eve hadn't have done it, we'd all be okay. No, you wouldn't. That sounds like a typical man doing what he does, huh? Mansplaining. The reality is this. When God wanted the world to know that his son was risen, he sent women. Think about it. The implications are profound. The inauguration of a new creation. The old creation fell when a woman was deceived and her husband with her. The new creation is inaugurated When women witness the resurrection of Christ and they go and tell the men and their men are like, yeah, I don't know if I believe it. Powerful. That's called redemption. That's called reverse the curse. That's called make what's wrong right again. That's called fix and straighten what's twisted. Amen? And they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. His body's still never been found. It never will be. This is the simple truth of the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus was beaten, crucified, died, was buried, and then rose again. He's the only one in history to ever do that. That's a really important fact. No dead body, a risen body. 
You know, and, and that's really important because a lot of false theories about Jesus' death and resurrection have been circulated through, through time. Even back when he died, they circulated a false theory about him. There's one theory that's, that's laughable. It's called the swoon theory. And the swoon theory is the idea that Jesus was, wasn't quite all the way dead. You ever seen the Princess Bride? He's mostly dead, okay? And, and, and that he was put in a tomb, and in the coolness of the tomb, somehow, sitting in there kicking back for a few days, you know, he revived. And, and oh, also his disciples came, these fearful guys who wanted to hide and were afraid of everything. His disciples came, overpowered a military guard with one sword. Dude was a ninja, man. I'm talking, it was Peter. No. Right? And then they broke the seal upon the stone that was sealed by a wax seal that would have basically been a, you know, this is the end. If you break the seal, you die. You're executed. They broke the seal. And then these guys, now this huge stone would have rolled kind of down almost into a notch and locked in place. Then they would have moved the stone and then they would have gone into the tomb and Jesus, who was swooning from being beaten by a whip called a cat of nine tails until it ripped his flesh from his body and he bled out everywhere, being punched in the face continually, having a crown of thorns put upon his brow and then have it beaten into his head with a reed, spat upon, punched, beaten, and then hung upon a Roman torture device. That Jesus, oh yeah, oh, and, and, then, and then after he gave up his last breath, but not all the way dead, the Roman soldier pierced his side and out flowed blood and water as the sack around his heart was pierced. That Jesus somehow swooned and came back to life and then conquered the world with his love. How many of you know that is absolutely ridiculous? So he was fully dead and now he's fully alive. He is risen. And then they ask this profound question. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Now, I've preached on this before, and I think it's a very relevant question for each of us in this room. Why do you seek the living among the dead, the, the angel said? Let's talk about death for a minute. You ever realize that you and I often seek living things, life in the dead things? We go looking in all the wrong places for all the wrong stuff. We think things are going to life us, fulfill us, give us a reason to live, give us purpose, give us meaning, give us value that are dead, that have no life to them, right? What tombs are you searching for life in? Like these women, we often seek for life in places of death. But Jesus doesn't remain in places of death. He's the resurrected Lord and Savior. He's the risen one. He is the resurrection and the life. He can't stay anywhere dead very long. Death has no right to him. Jesus has authority over death. Death cannot hold him. He's sinless. He's perfect. He's pure. When death came knocking, Jesus said, you can borrow me for a few days and then I'm done with you forever. Think about it. Jesus wasn't just murdered. His life wasn't taken from him. He said this. I lay my life down willingly. No man can take my life from me. I lay it down willingly and I pick it back up. What's that tell us? Jesus had authority over death and he gave death time. Three days 
that it may be proven that he didn't just have a near-death experience for 45 minutes or an hour, but he was buried in a tomb for three days, and he came out of that tomb. What tombs are you looking for life in? I mean, think just about some of the sinful behavior in our life that we actually think is going to life us. You know, anger, gossip, lust, greed, materialism, a love of money, pride, power, control, lying, cheating, manipulation, sexual immorality, pornography, adultery, laziness, covetousness, murder, hatred, prejudice. How many of you are like, oh my goodness, he hit me three or four times? I think about it. How many times do we go looking for life in those places? I know people that have told me straight out, when I get angry and I explode, there's a few minutes. Later I feel shame, but there's a few minutes where I feel powerful. Some people really like the fact that their anger and their projection can make everybody in the room be still, can shut their children down, their spouse down, people around them. Maybe you're a boss, and if you just, you just let off with an angry yell and a couple of expletives, everybody falls in line. There's a rush to that, but that's death. That's manipulation. That's control. It's sin. It's evil. Let's call it what it is. It's evil. Or how about our greed and our materialism? We live in the most materialistic society in the history of mankind. Yes, we're even worse than Rome. There's never been a society like us. Think about it. You go online, you, you hit you know Amazon Prime, which I am a member of, and in one day, it's at your door. One day. Next day delivery. Sometimes two. That's rough. We're really suffering. Soon drones will deliver it to us. We can have whatever we want whenever we want it. And we're being trained constantly. We're, we're being conditioned constantly. We're being brainwashed constantly. You don't have enough. You need to be unsatisfied. What you're driving, what you're living in, what you're wearing, it's not good enough. You need more. More stuff, more stuff, more stuff, more stuff. And what's cool about stuff is that, you know, as soon as you get it, the dopamine shots go off in your head and you get that rush and you like the smell, the, the touch of it. You like the experience of it. It's wonderful. Oh, my precious, it's beautiful. <laughs> and then in a few days... I need to go on to Amazon Prime again. <laughs> right? That's a problem. We laugh about it, right? We, but we are materialists. Whoa. Or how about our addictions? Probably, again, I'm sorry to, you know, launch into this generation's the worst ever, but here's the reality. When it comes, when it comes to addictions to substances... There's never been a generation that can even hold a candle to us. We're addicted to so much on so many things. We're so medicated. We're both legal, illegal, prescription. And we look at people, you know, we look at people that are meth addicts. And we make harsh judgments. Oh, you know, meth addicts. Terrible. They're, they're terrible. As we rely upon prescription drugs to keep us going as we medicate our life away with opiates and whatever else we need to deal with our pain, right? How about sexual addiction? In church? Pastor. Who's going to challenge us on? 
What about pornography? It's ruining a lot of marriages. You know why your sex life is bad? Because you're looking at porn. It's twisted you. It's destroyed it. It's evil. Those people, they've been taken advantage of. They're being used to satisfy you. And people are making billions of dollars off of our lusts. How about food? Ooh. Sorry. I'm seeing, I saw somebody just grab a rock. Right? We're addicted to food. How about adrenaline thrill addiction? Social media. You got that like? They liked it. They loved it. They wowed it. They commented on it. <laughs> and at that moment, again, science has now proven it. The same exact chemical processes that go on in your brain when you do certain drugs also go on in your brain when you notice that people are responding to your social media. But simultaneous to that, if they don't respond, if you're not getting more followers, if you're not getting more friends, if your content isn't doing anything for people, I'm getting really sad. Depression comes in. Is it, could it be, come on, follow me here, could it be that the rise of teenage suicide starting in 2012, go look at the graphs, 2012 teenage suicide started shooting up. Why? Well, that was the year that these things became widespread in their use among our young people. Why? Because here is where the whole world is happening. This is where I'm being told I'm valuable or I'm not. Oh, you look so beautiful. Oh, no. You, you see what I'm saying? The whole world is there. And so, but, but wait, before you get too concerned about young people, do you know the people I see most often driving down the road with their eyes attached to their cell phones as they're driving? People like my age. See, we got a problem, people. And let me tell you, none of it will life you. It's death. Let's call it out for what it is. It's death. It will let you down. It will, it will break your heart. It will suck the life out of you. It's not Christ. It's not the Holy Spirit. You're looking for love in all the wrong places. Looking for love in too many faces. It's killing us. It's keeping us from being a people content in God. And we have our good idols too. And I... I need to move, but our good idols, you know, the things God intended for pleasure and for good, things that are gifts that he gives us that we've made into idols, our hobbies and interests, beauty, the outdoors, your home, your spouse, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your career, your family, your money, your portfolio for retirement. When we begin to count on them to make us happy and to fulfill us, we've begun to look for life in places of death. Look, God gave the gifts. But when the gifts become the thing, when having the perfect relationship, I'm going to tell you, I, I said this in the first service, I remember that season in my life, in my young marriage years with my wife, when I realized my wife disappointed me. She disappointed me. You know what I'm talking about. I came to a point where she wasn't what I hoped she would be. 
And you know why she disappointed me? Not because she isn't a stunning, amazing person who takes my breath away, not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually and mentally, but because I wanted her to give me something that only God could give me. I was looking for her to affirm something in me, to give me value, to make me feel loved and appreciated. And whatever, that, whatever package that came in, whether it was a physical thing, an emotional thing, a mental thing, I was wanting my wife to be to me what only God could be to me. I was taking the gift and I was making it the thing. And God was saying, get your eyes off the gift and realize that gift that I gave you was to draw your attention to me. I gave her to you. You care for her because she's a gift from me. And you look at her and you realize what a wonderful, beautiful creation it is. And then lift up your eyes and thank your maker and thank your creator. And thank the giver of the gifts because he's the one that has blessed your life. It's not look for life-giving things in tombs. What tombs are you looking in? So that takes us to the last thing that the angel said. He is not here. But, you've heard me jokingly say before, that's a big but. But, he has risen. He is not here but he has risen. He is life, not the stuff. Jesus is the person that is the embodiment of life. He is alive. All the stuff I spoke of is not alive or life-giving. It's to point to him. He has conquered your sin, your fears, your addictions, and your failures. He has conquered the biggest enemy of all, death. The entire faith of the Christian relies upon this truth. Jesus is not in the tomb. He doesn't hang out in places of death. And when he does, he goes there on rescue missions. He goes there to take people out of death and bring them into life. Amen. But he has risen. We don't worship a dead man. Let me say that again. We don't worship a dead man. Come on, somebody. We don't worship a dead man. Come on. This is another unique feature of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you go survey, look, if you're on a, a seeking quest, here's what I want to share with you. Go survey all the religions of the world. All of them have some great leaders, profound leaders, but they're all dead. But Jesus is alive. The tomb is empty. There are no bones. You're not going to find any evidence of his death because he's alive. And he isn't just alive historically, and he's not just alive bodily, but he's alive among us. He's in the room. Jesus is in this house. He's here right now. And the same Jesus that walked the earth 2,000 years ago and caused leprosy and death to leave human bodies. The same Jesus that spoke to a man named Lazarus in a tomb and said, come out. The same Jesus who spoke a word and somebody in a distant place was healed that very moment. That same Jesus who is life 
who is resurrection, is alive right now, right here in this room, and he still does miracles. Amen.